We've come to Psalm chapter number six. It's David. David is hurt. He's in pain. It's the first of eight different penitential confessional psalms. David is hurt because people had hurt David. And therefore, he penned this psalm, and it is a song, remember? He didn't sing like Elvis, but I am sure he was a singer. He played the harp. He was a musician. And he is hurt because he was the run of the family. His big, boisterous brothers, strong, and he was a ruddy-faced little guy. And his mom and dad evidently were pretty ashamed of him, and they put him out to look after those stinking, dirty sheep. A nobody hurt by his family. He was hurt also as even though he slew Goliath, his hero was King Saul and Saul was jealous of him and hunted him down as an animal seeking to kill him time and time again over a period of years. That is very hurtful. Many people hurt David through the years. Those he had helped turned on him. Those he had befriended turned on him until finally the ultimate pain he received was when his favorite son Absalom, whom he'd given a lot of grace to, hurt him by leading a revolution to kill his dad on the throne and to take his place and over half the kingdom was following this basically godless revolutionary called Absalom. David was hurt. He had been hurt by people. Also, he was hurt because he had hurt people. Most dramatic illustration of that we're all familiar with, Bathsheba, Uriah. But the inside story shows that now there had been a revival of the conscience of David, an awakening moment. All this is in chapter 6 of Psalm. And he realized that the lust of the eye, ladies and gentlemen, David should have been out fighting with his troops. They were in a ferocious battle, lasted a long period of time, but David just walked on the balcony and looked out and saw his one of his leading commander's wife was bathing. Maybe she forgot to pull the shade. Maybe she was bathing outside. We don't know, but the lust of the eye is powerful. And then the lust of the flesh. Who can turn down the king? Who can say no to a king? Adultery. Then the pride of life got David. When it was discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant, David had strategy for that. Uriah had been off to battle. He knew if she gave birth and her husband hadn't been there for a couple of years, it might be a little suspicious. So David called Ahab. 
the cold-hearted general and said, send her husband Uriah to be home for a while. I'll talk strategy with him. He's my next door neighbor. Uriah came home, but Uriah didn't go in to be with his wife. David said, why? He said, I can't go in when your troops are out on the front line fighting for our nation. I can't go in and have the pleasures of a husband. He slept outside. What a man. David had a problem. Bathsheba was pregnant. Oh, and now he went and asked Ahab to take Uriah and charge the enemy and put him right at the point, almost certainly to be killed, and he was killed. But David, the pride of life, ladies and gentlemen, make us do a lot of crazy things, doesn't it? Lust, the eye, lust of the flesh, now the pride of life, and David had the perfect cover-up. He married Bathsheba, and they all said, look how great the king is. He is marrying the widow of his leading, one of his leading commanders. Cover-up. Went on for a period of time, but we'll touch on the story later. Nathan dealt with that, and David realized and faced his sin. That's part of this, I think, in chapter 6. David was hurt by others. He hurt others. And now we have a a wake-up call in Psalm chapter number 6. That's where we are. He put it to music. Eight string instruments. Verse one, O Lord, he says, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten or discipline me in your wrath. And wrath is hot displeasure. All of a sudden, David knew the relationship with God that he'd enjoyed so long. David was the apple of God's eye. He was blessed, uniquely blessed, called out as a shepherd. Now he knew that God had turned his back on him. Have you ever had a close friend or husband or wife or someone and they just turn away from you? And David had a friend in God and God turned away from him because God cannot look and entertain and cheer garbage and sin in any person's life. And now he said, oh Lord, you know, Don't don't just wipe me out. But notice in all of this, by the way, these 10 verses of chapter 6, the word Lord is mentioned eight times. Yahweh, Jehovah, eight times. So he still felt he had that relationship because, but he had been hurt by others and others had hurt him. He felt totally estranged. You ever wake up in the morning, you say, you know, where are you, God? Why, Why is this happening This is David. And he says in verse 2, Oh, be gracious to me, O Lord. I am pining away. That is emotional pain. That's depression. I dare say no one here has not experienced different times of depression, emotional pain, a deadly kind of pain. 
He said, I'm, I'm pining away. Then he says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are displayed. That is physical pain. Who can tell me where emotional pain stops and physical pain begins? It's, it's almost interchangeable there. They come up together. They come in pairs, if not in triplets. Look at the next one. And my soul, the word soul here, is the same word for life. He said, and my soul is greatly dismayed. This is moral pain. I got away with it. No one knew. No one found out. Man, I've got it covered up. I'm slick. But all of a sudden, there's exposure and there is moral pain. How can you separate those? Mental pain, physical pain, moral pain. They all somehow interplay with one another when we turn our back on God. Now, don't misunderstand this. I am not saying that all sickness is a result of moral pain. Don't go home with that foolish assumption. I'm not saying, but somehow, inextricably, these things are bound together, and David feels the full impact of it. He's saying, I'm hurt. Then he says, the latter part of verse 3, but you, O Lord, how long? There is that phrase, but thou, O Lord. Remember? But thou, O Lord, God, he hoped, hadn't given up on him, and he hadn't given up on God. And he asked, how long? Now, you can't see it in the text, but this is a pause. You have to be a biblical scholar, which I'm not, but it is a pause in the dialogue. He's saying, I'm hurt, I've hurt others, and others have hurt me. And he has all of this pain in his life. And then there is a timeout. You see this rarely in the Bible. You see it there when Adam and Eve committed sin and they were kicked out of the garden. And, and then there's a little phrase in there in the Genesis account. And, and the accurate understanding would be is that the statement is made. Is there any way for Adam and Eve to get back with God? And there's a pause. Also, when the people of Israel turned back to idols there and Moses received the Ten Commandments of God and Moses threw those commandments down, and then there's a pause right there in the Hebrew text. And the pause is saying, is there any hope now for Moses and the Hebrew people, a pause. And there's a pause right here. David's come to the point and say, is there any hope for me? And then he moves on and has a wonderful, wonderful dialogue or monologue, I guess it was. And he says, verse four, return to me, O Lord. He's away from God. Rescue my soul, my nephesh. There's the word again. Same word for life. Save me because of your loving kindness. Hold on to that phrase. Remember, we'll be back to it. Loving kindness. Anytime you're reading in the Bible, the word friend, it's a reference to the blood covenant. Anytime you read in the Bible, the word kindness, it's a reference to the blood covenant. Anytime you read in the Bible the word loving kindness, bang, it's a reference to the blood covenant. And we'll talk about that. And now, 
David is wiped out. He's empty. He's estranged, but his conscience is working on him. And he asks, how long? Is there any hope for me? And then he says, the only hope for me is the blood covenant that I have with God, who is my friend. We'll come back to that. And then there's that long thing of tears of repentance, I have called it. He says, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me with your loving kindness, blood covenant word, because I'm in covenant with you, verse 5. For there is no mention of you in death, and Sheol, and who will give you thanks? He felt like he was being thrown into a pit with no way, way out. Then there's the repentance and tears. This is a powerful, powerful grouping of verbs and words. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim in tears. I dissolve my couch when I'm sitting up with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It's become old because of my adversaries. Boy, is this someone hurt? Is this someone in pain? All of his past, his present has fallen on him. And then you have this little verse. It's a part of repentance. He says, depart from me, all you who do iniquity. The word iniquity always sounds slimy to me, doesn't it? You know, iniquity. This is the last part of his repentance. He said, I've got to get away from these people who are zapping the life out of me. I've got away from these people who see the world in different ways. You can repent and think, you go back to the same old crowd, the same old vocabulary, the same old habits, you're gonna be drawn back down into the pit again, right? So there has to be a total kind of repentance. He's saying, man, I'm gonna put behind me all those slimy people, those iniquitous people, and I'm gonna change. We've gotta do that in America today. We've got to do that in America today, or there's no hope for us coming back from where we are. I want to show you three words we're getting all too familiar with. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. By the way, those are fabulous words. Those are words that we practice with biblical principles in the church, in this body of Christ. I love diversity, anybody, equity, it ought to be an equal opportunity thing to serve the Lord in and through the church. Inclusion, we include anybody and everybody in the life of this body of Christ. And in the right understanding in a biblical Christian church context, this is everything in the classical definition of those words that we are today and we're going to be forever as God is no respecter of person male or Gentile, bond or free, any background, any ethnicity, the top, the bottom, that's who we are. But these words have been co-opted, co-opted by the pagan environment in which we live until they have been totally redefined. Don't be fooled by them. You see, a part of a revolution is you've got to wake you got to do away with the history of the past. You find that ever boy, the past is not, we're seeing this done, revisionist history. And we'll tear down all the monuments, forget everything else, rewrite our constitution. That's not what really is me. So as a rewriting of history is a part of it. And a part of that is the redefinition of words. 
You can ask Z, you can ask anybody, you can have Putin, and they will define and say, I live in a country where there's freedom, where there's religious liberty, where there's happiness and joy. That's the country. They have redefined those words, every single one of them. Listen to their speeches. And now we have these three great words have been redefined. What do they mean today? The operative word is the word equity. Equity means equality of opportunity. Equity now in our new modern Postmodern world means equal outcome. No matter what, there is an equal outcome. And therefore, you have tremendous pressure being offered, primarily from our government, primarily from the White House and the cabinet, simply saying that you have to if you're an airline, if you're a med school, if you're a university, if you're a business, whatever you are, you've got to push back all the requirements to be a CPA and make the CPA requirements left demanding in order there can be an equal outcome for anybody, anywhere, particularly with minorities, particularly with women. And so you push down all the standards. Harvard is doing it. Yale is doing it. A lot of our colleges, universities do it. And of all things, our, our medical schools do it. The airlines are doing it. United Airlines, Southwest Airlines, 50% of our new employees will be meet the equity standards. Why did this happen? During COVID, this isn't a total explanation, simple explanation. The Department of Treasury, under Biden's administration, said to the airlines, we will keep you flying, and they gave billions of dollars to them, provided you are DEE, DEI, that you'll just let equity, equal outcome, and you'll take in people where they're less qualified by standards or not, and therefore take the airlines. The airlines, you have to have, I think, 17 hours of flying before you become a pilot, and all the other requirements in math and science. But in order to have equity, Southwest says we want 50% of our new hirees to, to meet this requirement. So they've lowered their standards. I saw on TV a beautiful minority doctor, been practicing for 30 years, and she said this is racism in the highest degree because now when these lower requirements are there and all the vocations in our walk of life, even those who drive 18 wheelers, will begin to look and say, you know, I don't, let me tell you something, folks. If I go to a doctor or a CPA or I meet an 18-wheeler or, or anything else, I don't give a hoot if they're green, orange, purple, yellow. It makes no difference. I want competency and ability to take care of my medical problems and to fly the airplanes in which I get in. And when you compromise this, you're destroying the whole basic foundation of a meritocracy in the society in which we live. Let me give you an illustration of what happens. A tragic illustration. Was it three weeks ago? George Bush, right here in Houston. An airline, it was a 767 Boeing. Thank goodness there are only three people on board. 
And the person who was piloting was 44 years of age. He was a minority. He had been already worked for seven different airlines and was dismissed. He had failed already the competency test as they put him in a cockpit and they do simulations. He had already failed that. He went back and let him take it again. And they were going into finals right here in George Bush. There was a crash and he was killed. Thank goodness there were only two others on board because he panicked, as they said he had done numerous times with the other airlines and other testing. And when things got trouble, he just began mashing buttons and they crashed and all three were killed. That was Atlas Airlines. They were contracted by another major corporation. And now the strange thing is happening. His family, listen carefully, the pilot who was not qualified crashed into the airport, destroyed the plane and the other two on board. His family is suing Atlas and the other big corporation in which they contract for putting their loved one in the pilot seat when he was not qualified. Did you understand that? Well, I can't believe that's true. Check it out. I did three times. I couldn't believe it. Folks, when you buy into this redefinition of terms, you're destroying the basic foundation of the United States of America and of a society that can continue to exist. <laughs> David right here said, I've got to divest myself of all of those who are leading us down a path of, I love that deadly word, iniquity. And then we see a magnificent turnaround. He said, for the Lord has heard my voice of weeping, his repentance of tears. Now in those tears, there's a rainbow from God. And there always is one there for his people. The Lord has heard my supplication, my prayer. Verse nine, the Lord receives my prayer. And now he asks for vindication. He said, all my enemies will be greatly ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. There'll be a great awakening when God's people begin to live as the family of the Lord God Almighty. How did he come back? Blood covenant, remember? What is a blood covenant? We have the Old Covenant, that's the Old Testament. New Testament, that's it. We know those terms. What is that all about? And also, if you've read anything about David, you know his best friend was the son of Saul, Jonathan. Why was it that Jonathan, who was the heir apparent to the throne of his dad, always sided with David in the conflict between the king and the little David? It's because Jonathan and David were blood covenant brothers. What does that entail? Watch it carefully. If I wanted to have a relationship, a blood covenant relationship with someone, and they wanted to be in a covenant relationship with me, the first thing I would do, I would take off my coat and I would cover that person and say, I will cover you. They would take off their coat and they would say, I will cover you. 
And then we would exchange sword. Here's my sword, and they would give me their sword, and I would say, and they would say, anybody gets to you, they have to come through my sword. And then we will turn, and I will give the shield, and he will give his shield to me. I will shield you from anything and everybody. You are my covenant brother, my covenant brother. And then they would go and say, I will give you my belt, that which holds me all together, and the belts would be exchanged. And then they would go and say, I will give you my bow and my arrow. I will go and hunt for you. I will feed you. I will defend you. And that's how this brotherhood, this blood covenant relationship. And the next thing you would do, they would bring an animal. They would cut the animal in half, maybe in quarters sometime. And you would stand back to back. And then you walk with the figure eight through that blood and through the animal there, walk all around in a figure eight through the blood, through the halves of the animals, and then you would come face to face with your brother, with your soon-to-be blood brother. And then you would cut your wrist right there in the blood covenant thing, half hand, half wrist, right there. Then the other would do the same thing. Then you would hold your hand up and you would swear yourself in allegiance to this brother. That's where we get historically In a court, raise your right hand, swear to tell the truth. You swear to tell the truth. And then you would come and shake hands with blood. This is blood, you're mingling. And then you would take and you would bind together that blood covenant place, that blood. And his blood would be your blood and your blood would be his blood. And then following this, you would go and have a meal together. You would drink out of the same cup. You'd share bread with that person. And there would be a celebration. Then you would put powder in this place. So for the rest of your life, there would be a skin there. There would be rays. There would be a different color. So somebody would look at your wrist and their wrist. You would say, hey, hey, right here, that person has a blood brother. You see it there. Now move on to the New Testament. How does this fit? All the sacrificial system saying blood must be shed. We were saying about it a while ago. In order for sin to be forgiven, a life must be taken. And then you go to Jesus there, and he is on the cross. And when they nailed the cross, where did they put the nails in Jesus? Technically not in his hand because they would have ripped away. They would be right in that blood covenant part, part hand, part wrist. That's where Jesus was nailed to the cross. He would have been the Passover lamb. You know the biblical context of that? They would take a lamb, they would kill it once a year, and there would be, hands would be placed on it, and that would be all the sins of the world. And Jesus there, anyone could see, was the Passover lamb making interception for interception for you and for me with God Almighty. The blood would have been shed. Go to the upper room. I'm leaving out a lot. I can, you can trace it all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the trail of blood. The trail of blood. There's life in the blood. A lot of years, people would say that and be, oh, well, there's not life until physiology. Physiology, we know that now, physiologically. So then the upper room, this is my body, which broken of you. This is my blood, the cup, which was shed for you. And so we see 
the new covenant, the new contract that's now between you and me and God through Christ and all those who come to receive him, our sins are forgiven. They're not only forgiven, they are eliminated. They're not covered as they were with the animal sacrifice, the Old Testament. They're eliminated with the healing, cleansing blood of the New Testament. New covenant, old covenant, blood brothers. Now, let's move back to David. David was on the throne. He'd been on the throne for a number of years. And with his 160 IQ, he thought, does Saul have any family left? He was not blood family, remember. Though he's in a blood relationship with Saul's son. And somebody said, yeah, he's got. There's one person left. It's Jonathan's son. His name is Mephibosheth. And David said, go find him Mephibosheth and bring him to me. Well, Mephibosheth, when, when the revolution took place, Mephibosheth was a baby, and the nurse picked up baby Mephibosheth and was running because David was coming into power. What happens when a new king comes into power historically all the way through history, all the way up to Sodom Hussein? They killed anybody who'd be in contestant for the throne, right? Any of the family that would have lineage. And so the nurse picks up Mephibosheth running because David is now going to be the king, and the nurse trips, and little Mephibosheth goes down and breaks both legs. And therefore, in that day, Mephibosheth never walked. But that nurse took Mephibosheth and went in hiding in a place called Lodabar. I remember hearing a mountain preacher pronounce that. It sounded like it had 15 syllables. Lodabar. And so David said, now go and find the any heir. They said, yeah, Jonathan's got heir. He, he's a big guy now. He's, he's in his 20s. said, bring him to me. Well, all of his life, what did Mephibosheth heard? Hey, David, he's in the throne you deserve. You're in royal. Hey, David. Hey, David. That's all he heard. Hey, David. And so, boy, when they came from Mephibosheth, he said, this is it. And they took him back to David, and when he went in, he fell flat of his face. Read the Bible. He says, I'm a dog. I'm not worthy, old king. I, I'm not a company. And David said, Mephibosheth, look here. Context, you see this? See this dark, darker spot? See this raised spot? He said, your daddy, your daddy, Jonathan, my blood brother. He said, I brought you here. You're going to get all the inheritance that King Saul had. You're going to get all the inheritance your dad had. You're going to come and sit at the table with me. <sighs> what a moment. That's the real heart of our guy, David, who's so hurting in this psalm. Let's move ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, as Christians in the family of God, we are supposed to be looking for Mephibosheths. Looking for Mephibosheths. Not family, not friends, not connections in business. But people who have needs, the up and out, the down and out, we're to go and find Mephibosheths and tell them, I want to love you to Jesus. I want to love you to sanity. I want to do what I can for you. That's what we're called as Christians to do in a broken, dying world. We are all looking for Mephibosheths. And ladies and gentlemen, they're everywhere around us if we could open our eyes and only see. 
Mephibosheths. All those words, friend, kindness, loving kindness, blood covenant, we are to be in the business of bringing people under the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. It's in North Carolina. A few years back, young man, well-liked, Bob, a little town, and a new student came. His name was Kyle. He, he just knew his name, and the end of the day, on a Friday, he saw Kyle coming out of school, going to walk home, and that day, everybody walked home. I never rode a school bus home in my life from the first grade through high school in a little town. But Kyle was walking out, you guy, he had a stack of books. And everybody, was, he was new, and nobody had befriended him, and they'd all lived there most of their lives. And some kids came out and tripped him, and books just fell everywhere. And he was picking up his books, and Kyle went over there, Christian young man. He said, look, those are jerks, and he got the books. He says, where do you live? And they live close together. He said, I'll walk home with you. And they talked, and as they walked, Bob, who'd lived there, saw that Kyle was a super young guy, and he said, look, uh, we're, we're going to get some pizza tonight up the corner where some of the gang come and go with us if you'd like to. He said, I'd love to. And that began a friendship that lasted for four years. Kyle and Bob, the new guy, they were inseparable. Kyle grew up and became valedictorian of his class. And so they were ready for their graduation exercises. And Kyle went over to Bob and said, Bob, I'm nervous. Bob said, oh, Kyle, you got it. My goodness, you're the smartest guy I've ever known. He said, no, I'm going to share something in my dress I've never shared with anybody. You've heard valedictorian speeches. Thank mom and thank family and thank teachers and all the things. But he said, I'm going to share something I never shared with anybody. And he got up and he told the story and he said, when I came here four years ago, he said, I felt rejected, not accepted, new guy. And he said, I went and cleaned out all my books in my locker one Friday. He said, I was attending to go home and take my own life and I didn't want my mother to have to go out and had to clean out my school locker. And he said, but as I was going, my best buddy, God, said he came over and I became his friend. Cal was already admitted into med school at Georgetown and Bob had already been accepted as Duke as Christian young men who were really scholars. And Cal simply said the difference was, I had a friend. There are people everywhere who need a friend, they're Mephibosheths, they're cows, all walks of life. My brothers and my sisters, we need to be on the lookout led by the Holy Spirit to find some Mephibosheths. It will heal our land. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege.